0: What's up, team? Coming at you guys with another episode of Anabolic Radio. It's your host, Coach Hawk, with HawkFit Coaching and Legion Athletics, and today I'm joined by Dr. Pack. Don't forget the doctor in there. He's a professor and um, is a coach at Stronger by Science. He has uh, worked with some of the individuals that you've probably been familiar with on this podcast, such as Dr. Eric Helms, Dr. Bill Campbell, he has a few papers with uh, Dr. Campbell, Dr. Steele, Guillermo Escalante, quite the resume, and uh, most importantly, he's someone that not only works in the lab, but also coaches some of the top-level powerlifters in the world, in addition to having a massive passion for resistance training and exercise science. And today's episode will be based around being a great practitioner, which not only understands uh, having a practical first world experience on how to coach, but also someone who knows their strengths, limitations, and is up to date with some of the evidence-based coaching practices that the literature concludes. So without further ado, Dr. Pack, why don't you go ahead and give the audience a little bit of an intro and background on yourself.
1: Thank you so much for for having me on, and I appreciate the very wholesome intro. Uh, I'd like to say that, yeah, the doctor is always there, because we are the real doctors. Um, Medical doctors are mere physicians that, you know, from my opinion, don't know what they're doing, and they're just wildly guessing and feeding people stuff and see if that works. But joking aside, as you said, I am both an academic and a practitioner, I do research uh, as part of the Applied Muscle Development Lab in uh, at Lehman College over in New York. Um, while I'm also uh, affiliated with uh, some people in the UK. As a practitioner, I am a coach for StrongerByScience.com. I do work with with competitive powerlifters, um, physique athletes, as well as recreationally active individuals. At the moment. Um, there's nobody that would fit the characterization of you know some of the best in the world but pretty high level competitors right because the best in the world would be like elite level Sheffield level uh, competitors Um, however I have worked with national and international competitors in, including national champions and, and record holders in the in the IPF but I do love all things lifting I'm somebody who lifts himself Um I have power lifted in the past but my lifting is mostly recreational and I am a big proponent of evidence-based practice, um, something that I do think gets um, misrepresented, and we end up with caricatures of evidence-based practice, as well as, uh, you know, in the trenches, uh, real-world uh, practice and that experience, sorry. And that often often results in a, in a schism, for lack of a better term, where you end up with two different battlefields, uh, when in reality, those battlefields don't necessarily accurately represent what it truly means to be evidence-based or be somebody who values practice.
0: So given the Uh, current landscape uh, of uh, the current social media um, age that we're living in and information being readily available at our fingertips, what are some of the prerequisites you'd say that are important for coaches to consider when it comes to um, being a great coach and uh, more than that in some cases an evidence-based communicator because it's not sometimes just about reading the abstract sometimes it's about looking at the questions that the researchers are investigating and um, also the methods of the studies and limitations of those yeah so
1: i think that evidence-based has become a bit of a buzzword uh, and a bit cringe the term evidence based right not actually being evidence based so uh it is often associated like obviously like this is just an observation right so there's no citation that i can provide for this but my own observation is that like it's almost buzzword like uh, to a certain to a certain degree and you see People claiming to be evidence-based, when in reality they have a surface-level scientific uh, understanding, they sometimes treat uh, science as an absolute answer, and you know they they like the sexy aspect of science. So, hey, here's a graph from a study, or um, you know, here's a, a bar chart, or here's uh, a sentence that says um, X percent of of people do this, and that leads to the other. So without obviously accounting for the boring stuff and the arguably more important stuff like nuance, limitations, a holistic view of the literature, which obviously requires one to actively be engaging in science and reading scientific papers. Uh, something that you know many people, including PhD holders and um, self-proclaimed uh, evidence-based uh, educators, don't necessarily do because they, they're busy and they, they can't do it, but now that, so, Evidence-based becoming a bit of a buzzword has uh, an overall negative effect on, on 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 the scene and practitioners too because I do think that it leads to people becoming oppositional and developing a distrust in science because they they do see like i i posted a meme today about um trained by jp who's a like a very well-known bodybuilder and educator and uh, has his own company a very successful businessman extremely strong extremely muscular works with uh really high level bodybuilders like but he he said that you know science has nothing to offer for hypertrophy training because it's all um it's all in untrained individuals or like it's not in people that train hard and it's all done by like pencil neck scientists but i think Because evidence-based as a a word and science-based has become a bit pretentious and a bit of a cringe buzzword, that leads to people like him and his followers uh, becoming oppositional and developing a distrust in science, which then leads them to ignoring all scientific data um, and saying things like, yeah, that doesn't apply to me, bro, or, you know, it's simple, we know it, or whatever and in reality being evidence-based is not about just looking at the science treating science as an absolute answer and not valuing experience but rather it's a combination of using science as the base so like for example uh, science shows us that hey more sets in some cases and more doesn't mean every all, all sets in the world but more sets may lead to more muscle growth right that doesn't necessarily mean that you should do 30 sets per muscle group per week and that you can't see growth from six or eight but like if you compare one to four sets per muscle group per week uh six to eight eight or six to ten maybe uh will probably be better for muscle growth but being evidence-based means using the science as the base, and then using your your experience, and in certain cases, especially in, in like, niche sports like bodybuilding or powerlifting, and in areas of research where the scientific evidence is limited, experience and preference also play an important role, and there are cases where experience may be slightly more important than the scientific evidence, because there may just not be enough scientific evidence. For example, you know, peaking for a bodybuilding competition. Um, Sure, there are some studies that have explored stuff um, on it, but you know, you wouldn't necessarily go, okay, let me read the study and base my peak off of what these people said, when I've seen that in practice, XYZ works better, and the coach that I've been working with um, also has made certain observations, if that makes sense. So, Mm Yeah, I think that we people like to like to push back against something. They would like to be against something. And one one extreme side of and once on one side of the spectrum, you have the quote-unquote evidence-based individuals who push against the meatheads, uh, but then don't treat science appropriately. And then, then on the other hand, you have the meatheads pushing against the pencil-neck scientists. But the truth is somewhere in the middle, and like. Myself, uh, people like Milo Wolf, or people like the ones you named are also like Eric Helms. Um, these are lifters. These are people that train very hard, that love uh, being in the trenches, but at the same time want to understand, hey, how does this work? Or um, is, it, is there a better way to go about muscle growth? And if we didn't have science, we wouldn't be able to know, for example, and sorry for the, the monologue, but like things like training at long muscle lengths, um, and doing partials at long muscle lengths. That's an example of where science says, hey, guys, we may be onto something here. Sure, there's more space to... uh, There's more research that that is needed, but to, to have like a definitive answer, but if we didn't have science, we would just be trying... We would be playing a game of trying to differentiate between signal and noise while that when that is somewhat impossible given all the co-founders that exist when one is trying to make observations about what works and what doesn't with himself or his clients Mm. monologue done
0: Hmm. great points great points and just to add on that um where do you think this dogma sort of stems from right because you'll have different camps of people Let's say, for example, one camp says you should be training to failure, and another camp says you need to be training far away from failure, four reps in the tank. So, and I think this is something that I experienced firsthand. Um, My last contest prep was um, I kind of uh, structured one of my peaks based on um, what the current literature is suggesting to be an evidence-based practice for maximizing glycogen stores, so on and so forth. And um, the... End result of the peak was not my best look, and I think um, where people get lost is not viewing the science as simple guidelines in which they could modify based on their individual circumstances. They just see it as a hard set, definitive answer, and they need to be doing it like this; otherwise, they're not going to get results.
1: Yeah, exactly, and that's why I brought the volume example in, like. Yeah, on average, we see that more volume leads to more growth, but then it's the fault of the "quote-unquote" evidence-based crowd that then leads to that dogma, IMO, because and and because of the age of social media and the the need for content and the need for clickbait and the, the need for very like for for a sexy answer to everything, that leads to people running uh, running crazy titles or. Clickbaity titles or making content expressed without the appropriate level of caution. And nobody likes caution. Nobody wants to hear, hey, you know, take this with a grain of salt. People want to be told, yeah, 10 to 20 sets is what you need to be doing. When in reality, yeah, on average, we're making. We're seeing that more volume will probably lead to more growth, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you personally need to be in that exact range to see maximum growth. It could very well be that you need to be in the eight to twelve uh, set range. Sorry, uh, not rep range. But I think that both both extremes of the of the of the spectrum are what's causing uh, the dogma, and that's what we. Tr- in my opinion, truly evidence-based practitioners are trying to change to a certain extent. And people like Eric Helms do an incredibly good job of that because he he is somebody who remains uh, critical, uh, still makes makes it easy for people to understand the science because that's another thing, right? Uh, But at the same time, he doesn't hit you with a clickbait title that says, you know, uh, high volume trumps lower volume, you know, because that causes a knee-jerk response in some people. And, uh, you know, cause it's, it's, it's not necessarily true. So they're like, that's not true because I'm a high level bodybuilder and I've been doing six to 10 sets per muscle group per week. And I am an FBB pro or a natural pro or whatever, uh, F them and F everything they, they put out because of that one thing that somebody said. You get me? Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting to see how information gets communicated and played out. And, um, someone I'm sure who you're familiar with, uh, Menno Henselman, sometimes he puts up uh, the titles for these infographs and I'm like, well, if I read the paper and I look at the findings, sometimes it's a little bit uh, uh, convoluted is the right word, or it's a little bit blown out of proportion,
1: you know? Exactly, man and that was a great great example and shout out and respect to menno uh, But an example of a post he made recently about the deload study that came out from the lab in new york um so that the the title of the post was deload weeks weeks as in plural deload weeks impair gains new study finds and okay i get the need for a you know somewhat clickbaity title but some people they don't necessarily have, um Take it with a grain of salt, and and factor in that okay, he's trying to you know create a hook and lure you in, and and because because then he does explain the nuance in the description, but some people read the 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 title. And then they're like, "Oh man, here here we go again with a science-based folk new study." Because <laughs> it's it's literally one study, and it it showed that hey, if you take a deload week, uh, so essentially people took a deload week after four weeks of training, and then trained for another four weeks, and then another group just trained um, nonstop for eight weeks, and the group that took the deload week uh, s- uh, saw some slight um, saw some strength decreases in isometric and dynamic strength. And, like, that's so much different. And, obviously, it's one study that is not meant to be taken as the absolute answer for deloads. It should be interpreted as, okay, if you take a week off, your hypertrophy gains are probably not going to be affected. Let's look at the rest of the literature. Training succession studies on powerlifters show that, like, three and five days don't seem to affect strength much. Should you really be worried about a week off Um uh, Training, not really should you be taking a deload week when you don't need a deload week because participants in that study didn't need a deload week. And it should just be interpreted as, okay, this is the first intervention study on deloads. Um, Just a a grain on top of uh, the first sort of pebble that will lead to more studies being made. And deloads are something where we can look at our experience a bit more and what we've been doing as coaches and athletes. But that sort of title makes people go, yeah, you saw the news, about the, the, the new study, people are saying that deloads are useless and then that creates this confirmation this, bias. Yeah. And, and it creates a discussion based on a claim that was never really made by the researchers. Cause if you read the paper, the paper has limitations, terms and conditions, and it's just one study. No actually evidence-based individual said, Oh, let me look at the study. All right, yeah. My practice now is no more deloads. You know? <laughs> like, as a coach, as, as a full-time coach, I I didn't, like, I was like, oh, that's great. Taking a week off from training won't have negative effects on hypertrophy outcomes. Uh, good to know. And, okay, this uh, further supports my notion for, for my my preference for reactive deloads and that was it like I didn't think oh okay I guess now not, I'm not going to be doing deloads uh, whatsoever because they impair gains you feel me
0: mm. and just to just to um, take it a bit further because we're talking about this uh, recent um, deload paper I believe the author on it was uh, Zach from data driven by strength nope who's the lead author on it I was
1: it was Max Coleman, shout out to Max Coleman. <laughs> it was his uh, master's thesis. So Coleman
0: et al. On an Instagram,
1: huge shout out. And it was a really well-run study. Like, I'm biased to say it, but I saw some people like, and I have some comments uh, here. Like a guy said, stupidly, stupidly ran study. Nine weeks is too short to know the long-term benefits of implementing deloads in your training. And it's like, bro, this was a study with 50 people, 38 ended up making it in the analysis because some dropped out it was very well controlled, it was all supervised training, well, at least the lower body training that the participants were performing. Uh, There were multiple different measures for, uh, it was body composition measurements, uh, hypertrophy, strength, and so on and so forth. And because I was present at the lab, there were multiple individuals supervising participants and pushing them to train hard. So it's like anyways i'm digressing i digress it was a it was a great study and shout out to max for leading it cuz this was and it was the first study on loads, man there's no other study that, that directly looked at deloads so that should also tell people something
0: outside of the methods and protocols i also think um people forget how incredibly difficult it is to get participants for a study and at that even trained individuals to let you like take over their training and run whatever you want you know Um, so I think that's that's really important to consider and given that this is the first um, study based around deloads I do think in the near future this will birth other studies whether it be on reactive deloads or proactive deloads or a longer training duration before opting for a deload and as as a coach or practitioner seeing that um i never completely thought of writing off deloads it's just like depending on the person and depending on the context you know it could be a tool that's beneficial to dissipate some of that residual training stress that's been accumulated over the course of a training block so um, i think that's uh interesting and i'm excited to see the results of future studies and um, since we're talking about studies and science i would love to hear about your and i'm sure the audience would too about your phd and the minimum effective dose and we could kind of uh build off of that based on if your goal is more strength in nature or hypertrophy based in nature
1: yeah for sure so my PhD was on what's the least a powerlifter can do uh, and still get stronger. And as a result of that, I had to look at the, the rest of the literature as well, because um, before the studies of my PhD, there were no uh, minimum dose like studies on powerlifters. Um, so what we essentially found is that for trained individuals who want to increase their one repetition maximum strength, one, two, three sets uh, performed a couple of times, to, two to three times per week, as long as one set performed two to three times per week with like a load corresponding to roughly 70 to 85% of 1RM for sets of six to 12 reps, very close to failure. Uh, that seems to be enough to uh, lead to um, significant 1RM strength gains. But then because we ran studies on power lifters and I also did interviews, and I'm a big fan of qualitative research in our field, especially in our subfields of you know strength and physique sports. So we did studies where we took power lifters and we had them follow different um, low volume protocols, but also spoke to like some of the best lifters in the world, including like all-time world record holders and coaches who have coached m- multiple like IPF world champions and so on and so forth. And what we found was that for a powerlifter who wants to make meaningful um, strength gains they um, they can do so by performing three to six working sets of around one to five reps per week with those sets spread across like one to three sessions and using loads above 80 percent one rm like at an rpu of roughly 7.5 to 9.5 for six to twelve weeks and expect to make like meaningful uh, powerlifting um, strength gains not um, gains that powerlifters would regard as meaningful uh, so solid gains but if you wanted to further minimize your training you could even go as low as performing like a single like, like a single repetition one to three times per powerlift per week so we're talking like insanely low like going to the gym hitting a single on the squat a very heavy single though like i'd like rb 99.5 so i near max and you would still expect to make strength gains, although those strength gains would probably be less meaningful. But adding a couple of backoff sets in the form of like triples, uh, like let's say 80% of the single that you hit, that can make a world of difference. Uh, so things from a from a training volume perspective and strength increases are quite promising, especially for people that may be pressed for time or even individuals who also want to uh, prioritize hypertrophy training right because this is another way that you could approach this information but in reality for six to 12 weeks i'd be very confident now given the data and all the uh anecdotal reporting i guess post phd because this this has been out now for a couple of years if not more and a lot of people reached out and said hey you know what actually i experimented with this i tried it and it, it, it worked well um i wouldn't say treat this as a training philosophy for the rest of your life, but this is a concept and, and something that you can play around with whenever you're, you know, either super busy, um, have limited recovery resources available, or even when, you know, you just don't don't care about training as much. Training motivation is low, but you still want to be, make sure that, you know, your 1RM strength is uh, progressing the way you want it to be. It's mm. like a cassette tape.
0: Now, do you think that varies based on an individual's training level of advancement, whether they're more beginner, intermediate or advanced? Do you think that you know individuals who are more intermediate to advanced um, will benefit from lower volumes because their quality of work is high, You know, they're pretty f- proficient within a movement pattern?
1: Potentially, I mean, that's why I wanted to, that's why we did the interviews, right? Because I was like, In the intervention studies, we recruited lifters that were pretty strong. Like, for for literature standards, extremely strong. For you and I, uh, intermediate level. So, like, we're talking people around 85, 88 kilos who were uh, deadlifting uh, 200 plus kilos, squatting 180 plus kilos, and benching 130 plus kilos. So, definitely not uh, somebody you just walk into an average gym and, and be like, okay, him and him and him, like, We're talking way, way, way above the average gym goer. But the reason I did the interviews was because I wanted to get an idea from elite level power lifters that I could obviously not recruit for my, um, for my studies. And the the lifters that I spoke to, the men had an average total of around 750 kilos. Yeah. But the women had an average total of around 462 kilos. And I actually interviewed some women that had and still hold, all-time world, world records on on uh, bench press, deadlift, and total. So, like, we're talking top uh, five lifters in the world, regardless of sex, um, um, federation, or age, or, or any sort of category. Um, and those, those athletes also expressed, like, they expressed that a few heavy sets per week are going to be enough to see meaningful strength increases. For a beginner, I think, um, the... I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't think that they wouldn't be like assuming that that beginner has some level of proficiency and they're not like a complete beginner, but like then the uh, counter argument is that because they will be developing that proficiency, even lower volumes of training will be just fine for them to get good at the lift because they will will be shit at the lift, so they'll be just getting better and better. Um, that that's not to say hey volume is bad, although the, the relationship between volume and strength is slightly different than that of volume and hypertrophy, detail with, you know, uh, proximity to failure. Uh, but at the same time, as I said, this is not a, hey, just uh, train with uh, three sets per week for the rest of your life. You could, if you want to do, but it's likely that you'd hit a plateau at some point. You wouldn't be making hypertrophy gains and it would be very boring and potentially like ultra monotonous training. You, like you performing a single and triples for the rest of your life and it could, <laughs> take this with a pinch of salt, also lead to a few pains and aches, especially if you're hitting, like, very heavy singles and backoffs all the time.
0: Mm. Now, is there a specific reason why there is a key difference between strength versus hypertrophy uh, in terms of, well, I mean, the the recent position stand um, from the International Journal of Sports and Conditioning Um, or the Journal of Sports and Conditioning. They also put out a position stand for um, recommendations for maximizing hypertrophy. And it was also alluding to a lower volume-based approach when it comes to sets per muscle group per week. I believe the range was a minimum effective dose of at least 8 to 12 for stimulating growth response. But is there a reason why there is a difference between that for strength and that for hypertrophy?
1: It's it's a bit of a loaded question because then we would need to look at the mechanisms mechanisms of hypertrophy and strength is relatively not relatively is uh, multifactorial but I would say that it actually I'll not I'll not uh, I'll take a step back. Uh, and say, "I'm not entirely sure because uh, I don't want to give you like a, a brief answer. I would have to sit down and just really break it down. But it could be that because uh, muscle hypertrophy is um, actually, I'll, I'll leave it. I'll leave it at that. I don't want to I'm, I'm I'm thinking, and I'm like, hmm, let me not say something that I'll regret saying. But what is clear or clear is, like based on meta-analyses like the one by Ralston is uh versus the, the one by sean is that like as far as strength gains go you could be you you're maximizing strength gains at around like maximum 12 sets per per lift per week whereas um, for hypertrophy you could go 12 to 20 even higher and see even further gains but what people fail to realize is that one to four sets per muscle group per week as far as hypertrophy goes can get you the majority of your uh of your of your hypertrophy gains majority doesn't mean all but like you're you're looking at potentially 60 percent of potential hypertrophy and then if you add more sets you you like let's say you add another five sets and you're close to nine sets per week then you could be looking at like 80 something percent of total hypertrophy and then those extra sets account for that extra 20 percent that for you and i especially for for you as a fc competitor makes sense and it's something you do but for many people who are after getting jacked and strong like there will be times where those, those games
0: don't matter, you know, mm, that makes mm, sense. great points, great points. And I think it was around like 2016, 2017. Um, the industry used to be a bit da- do- dogmatic about maintaining a higher volume based approach. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's interesting to see how that's changed over time. You know, I remember working with, uh, Jeff Alberts of 3dmj back in 2015 or 2016 and uh something shout out to jeff something big that uh he always preached was maintaining quality over quantity because you know your quality of work is high you won't need that much training volume to induce a stimulus for growth so i think that's great i think it's uh some of the work you're doing on the ground is great and i can't wait to see uh more come out and um recently there was a systematic review and meta regression i believe it was when it comes to uh training to failure and i thought it was really interesting to see all the different data points for strength and all the different data points for hypertrophy and seeing how there's an actual slight difference when it comes to training to failure for hypertrophy There was an inflection point right about like one to two rir and then for strength it kind of uh just maintained um maintained uh the curve so for strength um could we safely assume that it's a bit more advantageous to stay a little bit uh further away from failure than it is than it would be for hypertrophy
1: um
0: yes
1: but (laughs) with uh some terms and conditions so First of all, huge shout out. That was by Zach Robinson from Data Driven Strength. Zach Robinson et al, including his business partner and friend, uh, Josh, um, as well as my sensei, James Steele, among other people um, on the paper, insane paper, amazing paper, put us all to shame. Um, And actually, in my opinion, one of the most complete uh, looks at the effect, the relationship between proximity to failure and uh, strength as well as hypertrophy now the the fact that training very close to failure and as you said like zero to two RIR was actually shown to be potentially more meaningful uh, than training like even a few, or a few reps away from that like three or four RIR um, but then strength was shown to be not affected the same way if anything going even closer to failure had a potential negative effect but what the authors as well noted on the paper is that load, so using a heavy weight is still very important for strength, and that will um, essentially still require you to have sets that are somewhat close to failure, but because you're using a heavy load, so that immediately puts you close to failure. So doing a single RP7 to 8 is different than doing a set of uh, higher repetitions with a lighter load where you're going close to failure. Using a lighter load is probably, is not going to have the same effect on strength. And if you're taking that set closer to failure, it may even have a negative effect because you won't have the ability to express the same amount of force as you're fatiguing closer to that set. But the idea here is, and that's, uh, I think the authors have done a good job at avoiding people taking this and going, oh, easy training for strength, hard training for hypertrophy. The idea here is that, yo, if you're going to do that set of five at RP10, you could call it a day at RP3 and leave a few reps in the tank, uh, at RP, sorry, at, at, at rep three and leave a few reps in the tank uh, versus going uh, all the way to failure because that's not giving you much from a strength perspective. However, if you're a power lifter or if you're somebody who wants to be proficient at one RM strength, there is the argument becoming proficient at the skill of grinding out a rep is going to play somewhat of a role uh, now we haven't explored this um explored this in 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 depth in the in the literature but you as a lifter you're aware that when shit's get, shit gets hard under a bar um you gotta be somewhat familiar with that feeling to be able to control your bar path to not give up and to be able to push through that rep so uh, that sort of specific practice has a role as well and if we make the assumption that hypertrophy at least in the long term is also important for strength then you do still have to be close to failure during some of your sets because if if you care about becoming as strong as humanly possible you will want to gain some muscle as well in the long term right like this is a relationship that we're still exploring but i'd say that you know your best bet would be to still make sure you are gaining some muscle so yeah
0: what would you attribute that that difference to? So, you know, obviously we want to consider things such as, you know, the the force velocity relationship and henman size principle, but could those be um potential reasons as to why it's more beneficial for hypertrophy? And then you may want to be aware of it a bit more for strength?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's what the authors uh, alluded to as well and the fact that you're able to express more force while you're away from failure, uh, especially with lighter loads. Uh, I think that probably is one of the reasons why we see that for for strength. Um, at the same time, keep in mind that the, this, like any other study, had some limitations, so maybe we take things with a the pitch of salt, but the literature has been pretty clear as far as heavier weights are better for one repetition maximum strength development than than lighter weights. But you know you may not need to take those very close to failure from a hypertrophy standpoint. Um, mechanistically, it does make sense uh, based on what you just said as well. That training closer to failure probably probably allows you to recruit um, uh, to recruit more muscle fibers and blah 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 blah,
0: blah as <laughs> they
1: say. <sighs> and yeah, I'm just I'm just being uh, being cautious with uh, with diving too deeply into potential mechanisms, just because I think that uh, we're opening a can of worms there that we may not be able to to close.
0: Okay, waiting for all the the trying to fill your warriors to come scream and shout the paper at the top of their head. Um, So that's great. Okay. And when it comes to the benefits and limitations of only interpreting literature and its findings, I think that most people tend to forget that most research only reports averages. And there's always going to be outliers to what's reported, whether it be body composition outcomes, strength, muscle growth. And um, what would you say are some key takeaways for people to consider when it comes to their own individual response to a certain protocol or certain guideline um, and how they could better structure their training to get the most out of it?:
1: Yeah, I think something that you said earlier was was uh, was really nice is that you should be using this as as general guidelines, right? Like the evidence at the moment shows, even if we look before uh, this particular um, meta analysis and series of regressions, it, it was pretty clear that for somebody who's interested in maximizing hypertrophy, absolutely maximizing, they, they need to be training close, very close to failure, right? So that was that was clear before that. This didn't just confirm that, but pushed it even slightly further, showing that, hey, you need to be training pretty uh, pretty hard, and potentially even closer to failure than we we previously thought. Now, taking the taking the findings of the study and trying to be exactly at the RIR um, range suggested um, is is probably fine, but at the same time, if for any reason. You are seeing that, hey, I'm actually one rep further away from failure or closer or whatever, and that seems to be working fine. Although I would warrant some caution with interpreting your own experience or your own results, because I'm not sure how clearly you can do that. Right. Muscle growth takes time. How are you able to detect whether stopping three reps away from failure worked better for you? But if preference plays a role and if you're seeing a different response that is still very close to the guidelines, that's totally fine. Same goes with volume. So if you're seeing like some people may be able to get away with 20 sets per muscle group a week and they're recovering just fine. And over time they're seeing that they're growing. Others may see that, okay, eight sets per week, eight to 10 sets per week, which is still near the optimal range, works really well. Um, they can fit it in because you know, there, there's a multitude of other variables that we need to consider that play a role in recovery, sleep, stress management, and so on and so forth. So. As you said, treat the research as general guidelines, and it's probably not wise to go. Oh, I'm going to train with two sets uh, of uh, two sets per muscle group per week, and uh, leave five reps in the tank. Like it's <laughs> unlikely that you know. But you you going? Oh, I'm going to tr- start at six sets per muscle group per week, and be at like th- uh, one to three reps in reserve. That's that's fine. Yeah, it may not be exactly. Um, what came out from the from these studies, but it's still pretty close, and you're still following the general guidelines. Same with with um, training frequency. You know, we we had a, a meta-analysis in 2016 published showing that training frequency, uh, high, a greater training frequency is better for hypertrophy, and then we had uh, another one published a few years later by the same author showing that as long as volume is the same, you're fine, uh, and you don't need a greater training frequency. Now, this is to tell you, hey if a, a greater training frequency is not something that you prefer, or it doesn't allow you to work um, work more efficiently, it may not be needed, but it's it may not be needed. It's not like it's definitely not going to have a beneficial effect or you should do
0: exactly that. Makes sense? That's a great point. So, would you say there are potential limitations of using an RPE and RIR scale for estimating proximity to failure um, and given it's it's more of a subjective scoring, subjective data is still incredibly important. However, um, I've found from working with people online and seeing them take sets to failure, or even in person, you know, um, when someone says they have like, let's say, a, a two RIR, eight RPE, you know, they still have plenty left in the tank. Now, could we attribute that to them not knowing what true momentary muscular failure looks like or just e- underestimating their ability to take a set there.
1: Yeah, and that's that's a really good point and another really nice example of where of how the literature just by itself should be viewed with um a level of caution and where all the terms and this always apply. We performed um a systematic review. Actually, it wasn't uh, just a systematic review. I'll just tell you the exact title. It was a scoping review and exploratory meta analysis on accuracy in predicting repetitions to task failure in resistance exercise led by Dr. Halperin. And that showed that people were imperfect at predicting repetitions in reserve, but like by just one rep. But those was da- uh, that um exploratory meta analysis was in an acute uh, setting um, th- th- there were many many other variables but in practice i've seen exactly the same thing as you i've noticed that a lot of my clients like a lot at least a, a great deal of them will send a video where they're like yep rpe 8 or, or they will even say failure and it's like bro you had at least four more reps there <laughs> and the that's where a truly evidence-based approach comes in play where you don't go, oh, uh, the literature shows that uh, we are pretty good at predicting reps in reserve and, and ignoring all, all the uh, limitations. Therefore, if the if this guy said RPE8, then I'm going to take this to the bank and assume it's 100% correct. But I think a good way for a lot of people to go about their training, especially if you're unsure of um, whether you're at a true RPE8 or not, or you're training close to failure is to take sets to failure and that's what i do in my own training um because i enjoy it and because we grew up as bros we didn't we came we came in the game as people who had you know you had to take every set to beyond failure and do like four reps. so like for the majority of my training like things like deadlifts excluded because uh, i'm training those for strength i will take sets to the point where i can't physically move uh, or complete even half a repetition, e- despite attempting to do so uh, while m- like my life depends on it. So one good way to make sure that you are g-checking yourself, for the lack of a better term, every week, is to uh, is to perform that though like maybe your first couple of sets to failure, and just every week see whether um, you know your prediction in subsequent sets was f- so far away from your first set where it doesn't make sense. I, 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 I received a message while speaking, ADHD kicked in and <laughs> it threw me off while talking but you know what i mean like perform sets to failure and that will definitely give you an idea of whether you're actually good at predicting failure because you could do that exercise by yourself so you could be on a chest support machine row and like you're five reps deep and you're like okay i think i'm at an rp7 so i have three reps left but then you actually take the set to the house and take it to failure and see if that matches or how close it is to your actual prediction because bro i've seen people that i've i've, I've trained with uh close uh, close with even even very trained individuals and like if you push them they may be able to get five more reps out of a set they would have called uh you know close to failure that's
0: a good point and i think uh, mike menster was right right. (laughs) tom flats that's a great term i'm going to start using it g check yourself and um, i think it's incredibly important before you take an exercise close to failure. You make sure you're in a position where you're standardizing your setup and execution. And once you have the green light for that, understand the difference between types of failure. So there is momentary muscular failure when you're actually failing in an exercise related to the target muscle, and that should be the limiting factor in the exercise. Whereas technical failure is where you fail in a movement related to your technique or execution or miss groove during a rep, which we've all That's happened to all of us. But when you're trying to train to failure, gauging the accuracy of that goal is incredibly important. And you could even go try this for yourself. It doesn't have to be a hack squat or a barbell back squat. Do it on a bicep curl. Do it on a tricep extension. Once you think you're at failure, try to give at least two to three more reps. And um, if you're not making ugly faces, you're not even trying. (laughs) Um, Yeah, exactly. Anyways, to round off this uh, conversation, Dr. Pack, I want to thank you for coming on and um, sharing your time and schedule with me. Is there anything you would like to leave the audience with as far as practical application or maybe any sort of events or papers you have coming up?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I'd say that, hey, your best bet as an evidence-based practitioner is to find efficient ways to keep up to date with the literature. Those, that could be through a research review or like if you're in an actual, actually like uh, science um, interested individual who has some form of academic background and can read papers. Um, there is plenty of uh, plenty of evidence based uh, individuals you can follow and get like an idea of what those latest papers are. But do your best to keep up with the literature, keep an open mind, treat science with caution uh, and not as an absolute answer. And at the same time always remember that your experience counts uh, as well uh, and it's not experience versus science but it's rather experience and science uh, to come and make evidence based babies when yeah, okay. enough enough i've I've uh, i think that that that's my that's that's my cue to leave now and not degrade your podcast anymore <laughs>
0: oh god i love it Uh, we're gonna have to link in person soon that would be a good time of uh sending some prs and um i want to thank you again for coming on guys if you enjoyed this episode be sure to like comment share all that good stuff and uh, hit us with a screenshot of this on your stories and other than that we will talk soon guys thanks for tuning in bye bye peace